Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, September 11th, 2020. Yeah, September 11th. Uh, 19 years since the first uh, September 11th. The headlines in the newspaper so you get an idea of what's going on in the world uh, because you could be listening to this at any time. Uh, disastrous wave of climate events slams California as Northwest burns pleading for help. New York Times headline. There's forest fires throughout Oregon and California and nothing but silence from President Trump because those are blue states. Uh, that uh, editorial aside are the views and opinions of Ben Jarofsky and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of my distinguished guest. Uh, uh, and uh, so as we do with uh, all bonus shows on the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Well, I, I am the only person that I know who was hosting a live show at a club when a white guy came and he was the only one there. <laughs> that was Ben Jarofsky. <laughs> I'm Richard Steele and it's great to be here with you, Ben. You're my good friend. It's always good to hear you. Yes, uh, that was uh, in the old days. <laughs> way back. Uh, it was way back and... Um, uh, the club was obviously a black club on the south side, and Richard was the uh, my our mutual friend Richard McGee was the man in Absolutely. the room behind the room spinning <laughs> records. Uh, and uh, my wife is an excellent dancer. I'm a terrible dancer. And Richard Steele, I mean, you know what, Richard? I don't know if you're a good dancer. I know you're a good talker, and you you have the gift to gab, and you. Uh, you had quips and jokes and, you know, you had the audience in the palm of your hand, but can you dance? I'm just cool. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just really cool. I'm just really cool. You know, really cool. Right, let me comment, let me comment on something that you, you know, you, you stated just a few minutes ago. Uh, you know, uh, no, there's no climate change. It's all the hoax. Are you kidding me? Was it somewhere? I think it was in Colorado where it was like one day it was 90 degrees and the next day it snowed. That is not normal. There's a problem here. Seriously. Well, absolutely. And this was not on my list of things to talk about, but since we're, uh, we're in here, let's finish it. Um, yes, there's a pro a problem here, Richard, uh, man, uh, is jeopardizing the existence of civilization by destroying our planet bit by bit, little by little. And our government that's supposed to be looking out for us is doing nothing on this front. This is my opinion. Uh, and instead they're, they're denying it. 
they're denying that man has an impact on the environment. They're, just, they're saying well, there's nothing we should do. I think this is one of the most frightening aspects, by the way, of the Donald Trump presidency. What's your thoughts? Well, yeah, he said that you should, when there was a, uh, you know, a series of forest fires before, a few months back, he said, well, what they should do is sweep the forest. I mean, it's, it's kind of like their fault. You know what I mean? That's just really stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, it's um, Some of it is way beyond belief that somebody could be that dense. But here's the bigger, bigger part of that. And we'll talk about this as it relates to Trump. What's amazing to me is that all of those people in the Senate, except for uh, uh, one, buy into it. At least they're, they're not buying out of it. And... which means that they have no concern about their legacy. And usually I thought the people in the Senate, certainly they will disagree politically, but I always thought, you know, this is the, uh, this is the august body and, you know, there's some principles and all of that. And beyond the politics, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be at least a few people who will say, listen, um, this is crazy. We have to get a hold of ourselves. <laughs> Nobody's doing that. I mean, I, 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 I just can't even believe that. It's, I keep pinching myself to see to say, is that real? Nobody, none of those people. Come on. Yeah. All right. Before uh, I've 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 uh, been not diligent in my duties as a host of a uh, podcast. Richard Steele, of course, is the legendary. He always gets mad at me when I say legendary because he thinks that means he's old. <laughs> uh, but he is the legendary uh, radio man. Uh, from a city of Chicago has had a show of one kind or another of every kind of show, a jazz show, an R&B show. And uh, of course, many of you know him from his days at WBEZ where he did public affairs uh, shows. Uh, and uh, I've been fortunate to be his guest a few times. My dear friend Monroe Anderson, who's a regular, we were the last guests uh, on Richard's last BEZ show, The Barbershop, uh, when he decided that's it to fold it up for that show. Richard, I have to ask you this, uh, with that as a buildup and an introduction, uh, apropos to what you just got finished saying, all those years that you were bringing in people of all political persuasions uh, to talk the issues of the day, did you ever see a moment like today where people, particularly, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm putting it on the Republican side, were just so blatantly uninterested in being bipartisan with like the Republicans, we talked about it with climate change. They don't feel compelled to introduce climate change proposals. They just deny it exists on, on uh, healthcare. They don't feel compelled to put healthcare uh, proposals out there. They're just trying to destroy Obamacare. It seems as though it's almost like a nihilistic streak in the Republican Party today, Richard, unlike any I've ever seen, where they feel they can divorce themselves from negotiating with the other party uh, and just act as though they alone, they exist in their own little universe. Uh, do you share my sense of uh, frustration with this? Did... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been trying to figure it out. Um, because some of these, you know, some of these situations that, that you just described uh, affect the constituency. I mean, these guys have got to go home, guys and ladies. They've got to go home and face the voters on some of these issues. And, you know, it, it is true that depending on where they're from, some of their supporters are Trump people. But the reality is things like Social Security and things like health care affects everybody. 
you know, and it's not mm-hmm. just hasn't has nothing to do with your uh, you know social uh, stance. I mean, your social status rather, and your income. So that's what I, I have a hard time understanding uh, why people accept that. I read a piece the other day in the New York Times. Uh, I can't think of the writer's name, but he said that essentially a lot of the Trumpers, when you talk about these issues that we're discussing now. They're not, they don't really look at that, even though it affects them. What they look at is, here's a guy who gives the finger to the establishment. And that's what they, that's what they're, you know, looking at as something that encourages them to support him. Um, They're not looking at, they're looking beyond the issues and saying, well, you know, these, you know, the elites uh, don't understand us. And, you know, we're hardworking, hands-on people and, you know, we don't have a college degree, and so, you know, uh, we've been put down in the past, and that combined with eight years of a black president, and they have decided that um, those things that we just talked about that are important to everybody, it's kind of like voting against your your own self-interest. You know, it's kind of like when Bobby Jindal was the governor of Louisiana, and, uh, you know, uh, Medicare uh, was an issue, and you know, he was one of the people that voted against that. You know, some government assistance, Medicare. Uh, yeah, it was Medicare. But there was a there was something in the budget that would allow states to get to access some money to get more health coverage through through uh, Medicaid. Sorry, Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the people who turned it. They said, "No, nah, we don't want to do that." And the people in in Louisiana, to a large degree, at that point, supported it. So, I mean, and Louisiana is one of the poorest states. So I I fail to understand why you would vote against your own self-interest when it it goes beyond whether you like a Trump or don't like a Trump. It has to do with if you live in a a rural town somewhere out there and you don't have any help, you have no hospitals and health care is limited. Why would you not want to vote or support something that will give you some help? I don't I don't get that. So I'm still working on that. Well, I can tell you that um, a theory that uh, has been advanced many times, but it was advanced uh, with with great impact, in my opinion. Uh, it has to do with race, to answer your question. And uh, Isabel Wilkerson, who you probably interviewed at one point or another uh, in your career, the former New York Times uh, great correspondent. Book. Uh, she wrote a book, Cast, C-A-S-T-E, just came out. Brilliant book. I can't recommend it to listeners enough. But one of her theories, uh, uh, Richard, is that uh, people in our country are so trapped into the caste system uh, in, the, in which white people dominate over black people. That's caste system in America. That to give that up, to give up their position of dominance in this caste system, which is essentially uh, what they're being asked to do, is so troublesome that they've turned to Donald Trump. This is uh, Isabel Wilkerson's theory. Uh, And they will vote for Donald Trump, uh, even if, as you pointed out, he's not acting in their best interest. And, and, And she has several examples of of how uh, this country is incapable of dealing with some of its problems because people vote against their self-interest. And the most obvious one is health care. Like you just yeah, pointed I mean, it out. And, unbelievable. Uh, 
So what's your thoughts about, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's latest book, Cast, but what's your thoughts about that theory about the caste system? No, I mean, I haven't read it, but I've read a lot, a lot of great reviews about it, so I do intend to get it. Um, but about the caste system, I think that's part of it. Uh, I don't think there's like one answer, but I do think that is definitely a part of it. Um, the other part of it, too, has to do with population. You know, as you well know, and I'm sure she does, too, you know, this is what we call the browning of America at this point. The population, there's a population, there's a population, there's a population shift, and there will be more people, there will be more people of color mm-hmm. in America. On oh, my phone, is somebody's trying to get me. But anyway, there'll be a, a, a population shift, and I think it's within the next, uh, what do they say in the next 20 years or even shorter, a shorter period than that. So for a a number of people who look at, you know, the issues of immigration and the issues of, uh, of equality and tying it into what, uh, what, what she said is part of it, but there's also a real, I mean, I think when Obama became president, that that brought it home to people who said, Oh, this is, this is getting terrible. You know, we have to take a look at this and support somebody who can save us and then Trump came along. Uh, the timing, he didn't even think he was going to win. You know, uh, as Cohen, Michael Cohen pointed out, he was going to yeah. use that as a, as a PR piece for whatever his next venture was. He didn't think he'd actually win. But there were people out there who said, as you just pointed out, this is the guy who can save us. You know, we uh, we are in danger of losing our status. And as you point out, the caste system, as it has been all these years, maybe in danger. So, uh, you know, I've talked to people. Let me just put this, drop this note in. I have talked to people, and I may have told you this before. I'll have this discussion with somebody who is white, and they'll say, um, you know, certainly black people have a lot to historically feel very badly about in terms of what happened to them. And they'll say, but, you know, I have my my ancestors came here from, uh, let's say, uh, Germany or Ireland or wherever. And my grandfather did not speak a word of English and, you know, he, he made it, he, he worked on the docks or whatever. And so, I mean, coming to this country with no money, penniless and, and not speaking the language, and he was, he was able to make it. So what about your people? <laughs> so, and I, I would always say, listen, I have a grandfather who passed on now, but he was from the British West Indies. Right. And uh, my mother told me that when my grandfather came here from the West Indies, he was a real smart guy, no formal education, but every time he'd take a test, you know, he'd score high. And this is in the city of New York. So you take the test, and then if you, when you score, when you score uh, on the end that when people will give you a job, they make you send a photograph. <laughs> and so that was the end of that. But I always yeah. point out to them, if your grandfather came from Germany and there was a job available down at the docks in New York City in 1920 or whatever, when my grandfather came here, he didn't have to speak English to be able to move a big, uh, you know, carton of whatever from this point to that point. You know what I mean? So they're both competing for the mm-hmm. job, but your grandfather's going to get it. Mine is not. And, you know, the whole concept of race, you know, a lot of the people in the, and I know this comes up a lot of the, the source subject, but a lot of people talk a lot about Hollywood and how that got developed. Um, Jewish people were, kind of frozen out and so they uh, that was a, that was an area that you know they could other white people said eh, 
Hollywood, you know, movies, eh, not so much. So people who were Jewish um, became heads of studios and, and a lot of the comedians, um, the Milton Berles, these guys were, 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 were Jewish, but they changed their names. I can't change my name. Yeah. I've got the pink job. I've got the pink job. <laughs> I'm going yeah. to be that regardless. You know what I mean? So, um, uh, not that I don't have empathy for what other people have gone through, but it's not the same. I mean, it's just really not the same. Uh, and uh, I always wanted to say that, so I did. Wait, now, Richard, when you have these conversations with white people, do you think you convince them, or do you think that they walked away going, ah, he just doesn't get it? Uh, some, some people, some people, I think, um, you know, when I, when, I, when I make this point and I say that um, certainly every every person who is white is, uh, and privileged is not racist. I said, you know, like all police, all policemen aren't bad policemen. But if you're white, or if you're a police officer and you don't say anything, I mean, you sort of, you know, you're a you're a bystander. Um, that's pretty bad, in my opinion. I, you know, if if you if you see it taking place. And and you and you say, well, that's not my that's not my concern. I think I'll, I don't believe in what they're doing or saying, but I don't have anything to say about that. Uh, you're sort of complicit. It's like the it's like the police departments where uh, you got officers who are really good officers, and I know some of them. Uh, but because of the code, when they do things that are really out of order, uh, you know, they don't say anything. I mean, part of it with good, is with good reason because you're out there. If you're on in a patrol car with somebody who you you may have to depend on to save your life, if you're in a serious uh, situation, you don't want to feel like they're not going to do it because uh, you uh, had something to say about racism and how they treat black people. So I'm not going to bend over backwards to help you do that. So it's, a, it's you know there are a lot of factors involved here. Really, they really are. Um, but I do think. When I talk to people, they walk away with, you know, that's something to think about when you say, yeah, but you, you don't say anything. You're not racist in the true sense, but you kind of like, don't say anything. I saw a movie. Did you ever see this movie from the 1950s, I think, with Gregory Peck? He was a reporter, and he was doing a piece on the treatment of Jews, and he went undercover as a Jewish person. Oh, Gentleman's Agreement. Yeah. Uh, it's called Gentleman's Agreement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go what, ahead. What, what an interesting movie. And I, you know, I just recently saw it. You know, we, gotta, we, gotta, we have a lot of time to look at TV these days. So um, I was looking at uh, the Turner Cable and uh, saw the movie. And it was an eye opener for me. I know that it exists. And I know that, you know, that sort of the history of that kind of discrimination. But it's. Uh, you know, maybe there's some people who 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 are who are white who don't have a true concept of what it's like to be black. Obviously, I mean, with that, I kind of knew what it was like how big people talk about problems they had being Jewish and situations. But looking, watching that movie, I was much more in touch with how that affects the person and America as a whole. And you know, I mean, it's, it was an eye opener for me. Well, I got to tell you that uh, absolutely everybody, to one degree or another in America, or many people, maybe there's some people who are exempted, uh, has feelings of insecurities or uh, self-hate or doubt uh, by virtue of who they are in relation to everybody else. 
Okay. And uh, that's Jews are no different uh, in that category. Uh, Italians carry it to a degree. But to your point, there's no escaping or hiding if you're a black man no. or a black woman. You know? <laughs> no. I, got the, I got the paint job. Come on. Yeah. No, you know, yeah. It is what it is. It is what it is, you know. So. It's, not, it's not like you were born uh, with one name. Well, you did actually were born with one name, and you did change it. And it's a perfect transition to something I should have begun the conversation with. Uh, we'll get back to all the political stuff, but I should have started the conversation with this. Uh, everybody knows Richard Steele is Richard Steele, but that's his radio name. Kind of, He was born with a different name. Everybody knows him as Richard Steele. Uh, so I'm reading the Sun Times, Richard Steele, and I'm reading this fascinating story about this son and a father, and the kid is from the South Suburbs, and the father lives in Chicago, and the ki- I think the f- kid's 14. I'm doing this off the top of my head, and the father's 47, and their last name is Slaughter, and they go in a car when the when the uh, civil unrest happens. Uh, and they're rioting and looting, and uh, they go drive around the city. And no, the they're just, not looting. They're not looting. They're not. Those things they're rioting and looting. I did no. not say that. <laughs> when yes, the looting, <laughs> I did not say the slaughters were. Real. <laughs> anyway, long went away a saying that the slaughters were Richard Steele's. Son and grandson, and uh, as if Paul Harvey would say, you take it from there, Richard, uh, and tell the rest of the story. Well, my grandson, Zachary, 14 years old, um, had just graduated from, from grammar school. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, he had, he had his eighth grade. There was no celebration this year that we normally have because of COVID-19. Everything was very limited. But he did get money from family members, including uh, me and his father, of course, and some other family members, and he decided to take some of the money and buy a camera. So he did some research, and he bought a camera that was a pretty good camera. He spent a couple of hundred dollars for a camera because he had some interest in photography. Uh, and so my son, uh, is he's divorced, and so uh, my, my grandson doesn't live with him. So he gets him on weekends. And so what he decided to do was, you know, he had him over, and he said, well, why don't we take the camera do a little bonding? And and ride around Chicago and take a few pictures. So I kept seeing these storefront, uh, the storefront art, uh, with the, on the boards. And, um, you know, they casually started taking pictures and then they said, you know, this, these pictures are great. So they continued to take pictures. And I think they did that for a couple of days in the book. There are 200 photos and, uh, and really interesting stuff. I mean, it's, this is stuff for the record because they, after maybe two weeks after they took the photos, uh, you know, a lot of the boards came down when you know, store owners decided that it was okay to do that. So in any case, they had this, they had all these photos and my son, who is an attorney and always has an idea about something, he said, what, you know, we, he, when, when he looked at all the photos and uh, after they got home, and he said, you know what, this could be something. So he did some, some uh, research and determined, you know, we can do a book. And he talked to uh, his cousin, who has published a couple of books, uh, self-published, found out how to do it. And uh, that was the end result. They have a book called George Floyd Matters, Boarded Up Chicago Storefront Images, Days After the George Floyd Riots. So 
the deal with that is he's been, you know, shopping, shopping around trying to, it's on Amazon by the way, but he's been trying to get some people to see it and talking to some, uh, you know, some people who have online columns and some other things. Uh, the Tribune story, I mean, sorry about that. The Sun Times story came up because Maudlin Herajika and I are pretty good friends. And she and I are both in the uh, Black Journalists Association. And, uh, you know, we've talked over the years. And so I, I called her and I said, you know, my kid's got a pretty good book with his, with my grandson. And uh, maybe there's something you can, can do. He said she does a lot of community stories. And I said, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll give you the book. I'll send you the book. And, you know, if it looks like something, that's fine. It's not. It's okay. So she, she saw the book and she said, this, there's a story in that. I told her about, you know, how it came about. And, and uh, she said, you know, since it was, and you might remember that on the front page of the Sun-Times, it was another photo. It was a small photo of my son and grandson in the right-hand corner, upper corner. But the larger picture was of, uh, uh, I think, I can't remember where that, why it took place, but that was something recent. In other words, she was able to tie it in with, you know, with another story. And uh, that's how it came about. And after she did that, the thing really blew up. I mean, after it was in the Sun-Times and the, the little piece of the, she gave it a whole page. And, and uh, so he, they were on, uh, they were on Fox 32 yesterday and they were on uh, uh, Leanne Trotter, who's also a friend of mine over at Channel 5. And they were on uh, with her also. And they were on BEZ yesterday yeah. where I used to work. You know, well, I actually called them and said, well, you know, what do you think about this? And uh, I think the fact that they had been on television already gave them sort of a, a leg up and uh, and they did an interview. It was it was really cool. So I'm very proud of them. Yeah, you should be proud of them. And uh, uh, I intend to uh, buy the book and help help the uh, the young budding journalist's career. He's only 14 years old. A lot of initiative on that kid. Uh, with those, those pictures. Um, anyway, while we're, we're, we've shifted gears, we're, we're talking about Chicago now. Uh, also, uh, you made mention of something to me that was in the newspaper. I kind of overlooked with the COVID. Uh, Richard Steele is not only uh, a, a, an interviewer dealing with hard news and politicians, uh, but he's also a jazz lover. Uh, in my opinion, Richard, as a DJ, you were, jazz was your forte. I mean, I thought you were at your best when you were uh, uh, spinning those jazz records. Uh, anyway, that's just one man's opinion. Uh, Joe well, Steele, thank I, you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Well, well that's <laughs> just one man's opinion. Uh, <laughs> I got you. You know, I you know what? I mean, I mean, let me just go to here before we go to Joe Siegel. See, a real first of all, it's you got to be cool when you do jazz. You just have to have yeah. that. Just that <laughs> cool vibe. That's true. It, 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 and then you have to be able to. Like even if you're just reading the literally reading the liner notes, Richard, you have to do it in such a way like it, you just know it, you know. So uh, yeah, well, like Sonny Rollins went into the studio and uh, you know uh, Sonny Stitt was there and he said, "Hey man, pick up that." You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I, I can't go any further because I pretty much run to the the limit of my knowledge of Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins uh, in the uh, in the studio together. But you get my point, right? You just gotta have to. Yeah. You have to, and and by the way, Sonny Rollins, Sonny Rollins just turned 90. So, yeah. Yes, Sonny Rollins turned uh, 90 years old. Anyway, talk about Joe Siegel and his legacy. Well, Joe Siegel, uh, the, the guy who invented 
well, let me see, how can I put this? He invented the jazz showcase, which is the premier, has been the premier jazz club in Chicago at different locations for a great number of years. Uh, Joe Siegel is probably the premier jazz promoter in the city and has been. He's been promoting, he was promoting jazz since 1947. Uh, he just passed away at uh, age 94. But he was an incredible guy. I mean, he was, all, he was always about the music and it's hard to run a jazz club because you're always operating on the margins as a business. And he always managed to somehow keep it together, get the best people to come in town to play. And he never, he didn't cheat people. Like he paid these guys. There was a story one time about after the, <laughs> after the gig, after he paid everybody, he had to borrow some money to get home. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because he, he was that kind of, I mean, he was really, he loved the music and uh, anything that, um, that made the, the made anything that made the music less accessible, uh, he would have a problem with that. If you were in the club and you say were on a cell phone, he hated that. When he went up to the microphone, he would always say, "All right, so you all with those little gadgets, you need to turn those off and put them away or whatever." You know, this is about the music <laughs> kind of thing. So uh, he was an interesting guy. He just, you know, he uh, he had a thing that he used to say. Uh, he used to, when he was announcing the act, uh, introducing the act on stage, he had this, he could always tell you who was coming for the next two months. And he knew which, which weeks, unbelievable, two months in a row. But part of what he would say was, listen, we have a jazz matinee on Sunday with the, with the same group that's here tonight. Uh, it's at three o'clock. Uh, we have what you call the Save the Children campaign. So bring them <laughs> and they get in free. And it's like, find out about Milt Jackson instead of Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Milt Jackson, of course, the best uh, jazz vibe who ever played, you know. But he was a a Chicagoan that made a mark that probably nobody else has made. He got an award from the uh, National Endowment of the Arts about, uh, I don't know, maybe five years ago. I went to New York for that along with the Chicago contingent to see him get it. Only two club owners have ever gotten that. It's all musicians. It's uh, um, I can't forgotten the award, but it's uh, one that uh, I think it's $25,000 and it's, uh, you know, given to musicians who are outstanding and have been, needed to be recognized. Only two club owners ever in the history of that award. And he was one of them. Yeah. Amazing cat. Yeah, amazing guy. Had a great club. Uh, the last time I was at a jazz showcase, uh, I sh- I saw the um, uh, keyboard player uh, Joey DeFrancesco. I don't know uh, if you've ever seen him. He's 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 awesome, Richard. If uh, you ever get a chance to see him, well, ever- let me let me let me let me tell you a story about that real quick. <laughs> Go ahead. They had a fundraiser for the jazz showcase about a year ago. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Uh, Joe and his son Wayne, his son Wayne actually asked me if I would be one of the MCs for that. It was at the Studebaker Theater. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, so uh, Joey DeFrancesco was one of the uh, acts that was um, performing. I had seen him on a jazz cruise maybe a couple of years ago. Um, But he, as you point out, he is a great musician and the set was incredible. And there were a number of Chicago musicians uh, uh, vocalist D. Alexander and, and just a bunch of great people. Joe was kind of one of these kind of guys. He was there too. He was like he was in a wheelchair, but he was on the sitting on the side of the stage and pretty much still kind of directing things. You know, there was a big there was a big band playing, 
and a guy was doing a solo that was kind of long. And he, was, he was making the sign like, all right, cut it short, cut it short. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, but here's the deal that I will always remember. I got a phone call about a, about a, not quite a week later. Um, and it was on my voicemail because I, I wasn't there when I wasn't near the phone when he called, but Joe Siegel called and thanked me for being part of that, that presentation and also being an MC. And he really appreciated that. Uh, you didn't, you, I know you didn't know Joe, but this, he's not, this is not kind of a thing that he does. And especially with me, cause I'm not a musician, you know, yeah. if, if you're not a musician in Joe's book, you're a second tier human being. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. uh, so I will always remember that. That was absolutely great. I was thrilled that he did that. He has, he has a book out too that came out about, uh, about three years ago. That's kind of interesting. He signed up. Glad I got him to sign it to me personally. And, uh, you know, he, he'll be remembered in he, Chicago. He, you know, he will be legendary, legendary status. Let me ask you this. Uh, I, when his obit when he died, there was this obituary, and he uh, he did like so many jazz people I know, not just musicians, but people uh, uh, in the culture as large, you know, promoters, writers, etc. They bemoan Elvis Presley, and their their attitude is and Siegel did this in the obituary. Elvis came out that killed jazz, and I always chuckle with that because. Uh, I mean, you would think it was something coming. If it wasn't Elvis, it would be somebody else. But nah, uh, nah, nah. Do you just, still, Richard, do you have? Do you share that uh, disdain? Uh, nah, nah, nah. Elvis didn't kill jazz. Come on, you know. Look, the, 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 here's the reality. Um, Elvis, Elvis is big. There's no question about it. Elvis. Um, but during the period of Elvis Presley, uh, there was a, a transition taking place at that point. Elvis was incredibly popular, and you can't deny that. But in terms of, uh, first of all, he was never that popular with African Americans, and that was a large part of the audience, that made, a part of the uh, uh, audience for jazz at that point. Um, at a later point, when jazz got in serious trouble, it was during the disco era. Uh, when, when clubs said, well, look, we can make a money, a lot of money with that. And, uh, you don't have to, all we got to do is get a DJ. We don't have to have live performers or any of that. So let's, let's do that. And the same thing with recordings. People were not buying jazz records at that point. That was a big change, but Elvis, eh, you know, I mean, people like to use Elvis as a sort of a, <laughs> uh, a whipping boy, you know, about, about, uh, this conversation about what happened with jazz. Elvis. Not so much. Not, that's just my opinion. Well, Richard, what was your attitude toward Elvis? I, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really have, I've been to Graceland. I was uh, uh, on a trip to Memphis. I was on, actually on a trip to, uh, to Mississippi to the casino. And I was on the train and we stopped in, in Memphis. And then, you know, you, uh, we take a bus to the casino uh, in, in, in Tennessee. I mean, in uh, Mississippi. So one of the stops along the way was the guy stopped at Graceland. Um, it was smaller than I thought. I mean, in terms of looking at the building, um, but you know, he, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he was a, he was a major star. Uh, he the way he affected the industry was incredible, 
And, you know, early on, I used to hear that story, but I don't know how true it was. The story about, he said that all any black person can do for him is shine his shoes. Um, I don't know that that was necessarily true. He had, there was a black woman who was his cook who worked for him for many, many years. And she was interviewed in Jet Magazine and some other publications. And she said she never had anything bad to say about Elvis, that he was really a decent human being. So I I don't know. Uh, I did have a conversation with a guy who wrote, uh, uh, he wrote a couple of Elvis hits. He was black. And he, uh, he told me that he had never met him. He said that uh, he got an invitation to, to, to meet him to be to be with him and meet with him at Graceland, and something happened with the uh, transportation, and he didn't go, and he didn't feel badly about it. And, but later on, he thought, "Well, I probably should have gone." But he said he probably did better not meeting him at all, and and, and just and just getting the royalty checks because he he wrote a couple of really major hits. Yeah, nobody who was who was that writer? Do you remember his name? Better I chance? can't think of his name now, but I interviewed him at BEZ. Uh, he yeah. passed away a few years ago, but uh, yeah, he was a really interesting, a nice guy, really low profile, and you know, he 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 made a lot of money because he he had uh, you know sole writing credits, and uh, he just said he was grateful for Elvis because <laughs> Elvis made him pretty wealthy. He said so. The fact that he didn't meet him, he said, eh, you know, <laughs> nothing against yeah, him, know. but you know. <laughs> It's it's funny you should say that. I remember uh, uh, reading an article where uh, Sam and Dave, uh, this is when the Blues Brothers came out and they did Soul Man. Uh, and the uh, the purists of the, from, you know, R&B sound were saying they denigrated this, this great song uh, and you got to hear the original and I, I just can't listen to this, et cetera. So for the, so the, I, Sam and Dave were being interviewed and they go, we love it. The, ro- the royalty checks are, are coming. <laughs> right, in, you know? right, 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 right. Uh, uh, I mean, that, that's before- been a discussion. That's been a discussion for a long time in that, you know, back in the late forties and, and well, through, throughout the fifties. Um, uh, what was the song by, uh, oh, Hound Dog, Elvis Presley. You mentioned how you mentioned Elvis Presley before Hound Dog was a really, really huge hit for Elvis Presley, right? Yeah. Well, the, re- the the record was first recorded by Big Mama Thornton, who, yeah. same song, Hound Dog, and, um, but, you know, she didn't get much play, on, had a little play on radio on some black stations, and uh, but when Elvis came out with the same song, she didn't write the song, so she didn't make a whole lot of money, but when Elvis came out with the song, it became a huge hit, and nobody ever heard of Big Mama Thornton. It was a good record. She had a really, a really good record, but it didn't get the kind of promotion those were called race records back in the day. And uh, so people kind of had a problem with that. They said, well, Big Mama Thornton got nothing out of that. And Elvis, it was, it was a huge hit and he made a lot of money and that kind of thing. So, but that was, that was, you know, that was part of the thing in the late, in the fifties and early sixties. Um, Pat Boone did that a lot. He, he'd take a song that was done by uh, Fat Domino and, or, you know, and make it uh, or little Richard. And make a yeah, sort of a, a, sanit- a, sanit- mm-hmm. a sanitized version of the song, and it would become a hit, you know. And so, a lot of people over the years, especially if you were black and in music, you had a real problem with that. And I certainly can understand that, but that's the way it was at that point. You know, you couldn't get you couldn't get the same song played on general market radio uh, as you as you could with a somebody uh, white who did the same song. Uh, 
So that was just well, a product of the times. Yeah, you're absolutely correct about that. I'm going to give Elvis a shout out for one thing. Uh, he did a song in the ghetto. And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah. And I got to tell you, I was just a kid when the ghetto came out. I was about, I forget, 12 or something, 13. But little Benny. <laughs> I'm listening to Elvis <laughs> sing it, you know, Richard. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a good, good song. Good song. It was a good song. It really was. Uh, it was a good song, you know. Um, yeah, so it is what it is. Look, speaking of music, I'm going to transition for you. You okay. told me to listen to the song by Hank Williams Jr. I didn't get the song, but I, I did look up this whole thing with the NFL. So, yeah. Uh, uh, all my rowdy friends are here on a Monday night. <laughs> that was the name of the song, and uh, it was in the beginning. It was all my rowdy friends are here, uh, are here. Period. And then on Monday night, you know, he he uh, rearranged it to to be the end. Anyway, that song he started with that, and the NFL. I think in in twenty eleven, and uh, it was Monday night football with that for a while, and then. Uh, later on, for some reason, uh, it's, it, it, it's, they stopped using it. And then they started using it again in 2017. And as you pointed out to me, they have now decided again to, to not use it. And I guess in the, in the climate we're in right now, um, you know, with the good old boys, maybe this is the reason. I don't know. Is that the reason? Well, uh, uh, Richard, you're, this is one of my obsessions at the moment. And I, I did neglect to send you uh, the song I promised to send you, and I'm, I'm disappointed I didn't. I'll do it afterwards, and maybe we could talk about it the next time uh, we're together talking. But I, I, I'm, I'm trying to f stay focused and not get upset here. But Hank Williams Jr., who is an immensely popular country singer uh, and was for many years, as you just pointed out, uh, the singer of the opening song, Monday Night Football, I did a is a very conservative uh, MAGA hat uh, of the MAGA hat political persuasion. And he has said so many outrageous things just in interviews about Barack Obama, comparing Barack Obama to Hitler, uh, about Muslims, et cetera, and so forth. If that wasn't bad enough, he came out with a song that I wasn't even aware of. I was just doing research into him just the other day. So I'm not into country Western, you know, um, that's just not my thing. So I didn't know about this song. It, uh, if the South had won. And it's a, a bouncy little uh, country song about if the South had won the civil war. And <laughs> Richard, I, I'm like, what if like he come out with a song that said, if Germany had won, you know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> right. It, it was like, so if, if Germany had won, well, you know, <laughs> why would anybody be happy if Germany would have won? That just meant more uh, Jews have been slaughtered throughout the world. Gypsies would have been slaughtered throughout the world. Then he would have come after black people. Okay. So if the South had won, we'd have slavery. Uh, you ever think of that, Hank Williams Jr.? We would have slavery. And he does, he, he makes it seem like all the South was about were people drinking uh, uh, fruity, tasty drinks and women with nice Southern accents 
Do you get what I'm saying? And they would they would know how to deal with drug dealers. They would just kill drug dealers. That's, that's <laughs> right. Okay. And I'm like, reading the lyrics and listen to the song going, well, you'd also have slavery. What about <laughs> but Richard, here's the part. The dude didn't lose any business over that. Of course not. He, uh, he, that, I mean, we just had all this unrest. This country's coming face to face with the realities of police brutality. You know, your son and your grandson are, are chronicling, you know, the, the, the remnants, the graffiti left behind as we deal with this stuff. This man never paid a price, even though he had a song that was essentially slave denial. It's slavery denial. You heard of Holocaust deniers? This is slavery deniers. And I I don't know, I was personally offended. I wish I had sent it to you because I'd love to get your reaction if you could hear the song. It's really bouncy and it's got a nice little guitar riff in it, which makes it even <laughs> more You know what I'm saying, Richard? It's like, what was that movie, uh, the 1915 racist movie that promoted the um, Birth of a Nation? You okay, know, right. Oh, what a great, brilliant movie Birth of a Nation is. D.E.W. Griffith Brown breaking, you know, uh, techniques of filmmaking. Yeah, well, it's a racist movie. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> makes it worse. Do you know what I'm saying, Richard? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Ew, man. You know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, it, sometimes it works in the reverse. I mean, look, the Dixie Chicks changed their name. They're just the chicks now. Yeah. You know, uh, so, um, but Hank Williams, Hank Williams Jr., as you described it, he's sort of the uh, the Ted Nugent of country music. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, we, I, I think we probably expect more out of people that are in the spotlight. And uh, I just saw a thing the other day where the talk show host, I don't know if he's working anymore, but Chuck Woolery came out with some really bizarre statements and supportive of Trump and all of that, you know, remember Chuck Woolery? Uh, no, which one, where was he at? I don't, I don't, the name. I forgot. He was, a, he, oh, he, he, he was a talk show host for a number of years, television talk show host. And I don't remember which game he did, but he became well known for that particular game. And he was one of the, you know, one of the, one of the game show hosts that, you know, you automatically, automatically think of from the sixties. Um, who was on a long time and, was, and had a very popular show, but he in an, and I, look, he's entitled. I guess you know if you feel that way and you're conservative Republican, uh, you know, because people are in the limelight doesn't mean that uh, you know they don't take a certain view. Listen, uh, Tom Eastwood at the Republican convention a couple of years ago uh, made some a statement on stage that really pissed a lot of people off. So you know, but he is he is what it is. You know, are you talking about his Obama? Uh, yeah, he with right. thing about Obama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, what are you going to do? You know, I, I, I what uh, are you going to do? But I, I just feel that, and I don't know. Maybe it's just me that a line should be drawn at slavery denial. Okay, I think just like denying the existence of slavery. Writing a song about the South winning the Civil War and slavery is not dealt with in your little ditty, I feel has crossed the line. 
That's, you know, it's, but you know what? It's the same thing. Look, the, the, conceptually, it's the same thing as um, the statues uh, that have recently been taken down. I mean, these were people who uh, they were traitors. Uh, they did some really awful things. And as you point out about the song, uh, that would be, you know, that would be like, uh, and, and having a statue, uh, of, uh, Hitler in, oh, still there, lost it. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, the losers, you know, (laughs) come on, you know, like that, that would be ridiculous. And so these statues, um, there was good reason to take them down and, uh, I get the point. Uh, you know, same thing with him writing a song uh, like that. But come on, you know, this was this was disgusting. I saw a piece. I'm going to send you a piece that somebody sent me today. That was one of the most disturbing things I have uh, I have seen. Uh, not knowing all of the history of African Americans in slavery, uh, I did get this book that was a history of lynching. As a matter of fact, it had all these photos. Because, you know, uh, photographers, photographers would come to lynchings and take pictures and they'd send, put them on postcards and send them out and all that. Um, but this other story out of Louisiana is a story that I'll send you. Uh, I saw it today uh, on Facebook and I was, it just made me so angry and, and so sad at the same time about uh, the whole concept of slavery and what so one of the things that was done there were many things but i mean you know if you people who are white don't generally have you know they say, well that was a long time ago we didn't have anything to do with that um yeah i hear you <laughs> but beyond that in the day in the world we live in today it's there's still a situation where if you apply for the tribune did a couple of these things a few years ago if you apply for a job and your name is Raheem Jones, and somebody else with the same qualifications uh, applies for the job, and it's uh, Mark, Mark, uh, I don't know, a typical last name that would be associated with somebody who's white. And they did these studies to see that the guy, the Raheem is not going to get the job. Same, they, they sent people out. They sent people out to test out the theory. And they also did it with uh, car dealerships, you know, where if you wanted to test drive a car, if you were black, you had to have not only a driver's license and your insurance card, and you had to have three pieces of identification and all of that. And they, they sent people out to the same dealership who were black and some who were white from the, from the newspaper to test it a few years ago. And so, you know, people who are white don't have to live like that. You don't have to, you don't have to think about that. Every time you either go out or you're in a store, you know, people, you know, the the manager is looking at you like you're going to steal something or very quick story. I used to work at WBEZ and I was working at WGCI at the same time. I used to do mornings. And so the the station was located in an office building on Michigan and Madison. Uh, Clark and Adams was where the other building was at that point. This is where the old BEZ was. So I was working mornings at at, uh, at GCI, and then I'd run right over to BEZ and and do a talk show, which was only maybe maybe two hours in between or an hour in between. So when I come out of the building on the Michigan Avenue side, if I was trying to get a cab to go south, <laughs> no one would stop. So I had to walk up to the corner and catch a cab that was going west so I could go over to to, uh, to Clark Street. You know, but trying to get one, uh, trying to get one 
like going up Michigan and making the right hand turn. Just that simple. Just the fact yeah. that I was trying to, I was facing south and trying to get a cab. <laughs> I knew that wasn't going to happen. Now, nobody yeah. has to deal with that. You know, I mean, I, that happens in New York. I mean, the last time I was in New York, trying to get a cab. I mean, it was, you know, like the, the cabs are lined up outside the major hotels. I think it was the Hilton. And I, I had a hell of a time trying to get a cab. You know, like, and these were guys who were not, uh, these were guys who, you know, some of these guys had turbans, you know what I mean? Not against them, but they looked at me like, you know, no, we can't do that. They they look at me and pass me right up like, so what? You know what I mean? And so you don't have to, if you're white, you don't have to deal with that on a regular basis. I mean, and I think people don't really understand that. It's a, it's a whole different experience. It's sort of a survival instinct that you have to have on a daily basis just to, yeah. to make it. Uh, Richard, we're going to close out on a little lighter note. Uh, everything uh, we've been talking about has been kind of deep. Uh, so let's close out with getting you to make a prediction. Uh, and then we'll bring you back uh, in a month, get you back on a monthly basis. We've, I've been negligent. Uh, so, um, yes, tonight, you have. <laughs> I have been negligent. I, I, I stay, I sit accused. Uh, so I could bring you back on a weekly basis if you really want to go to work. Uh, <laughs> I'm but, uh, like Monroe Anderson works, uh, I, make, I make him work hard. All right. Uh, so we're gonna, I'm gonna make you make a prediction tonight. Uh, we're the two of us are big basketball fans. Uh, game seven, Boston Celtics, Toronto Raptors, uh, for the right to play the Miami Heat. And so we're gonna see what how good a prognosticator you are, and uh. Uh, you're going to make a prediction, which I will write down and hold you to the next time you're in the show. So the winner tonight for Game 7, the big Game 7 that I cannot wait to watch, will it be the Boston Celtics or the Toronto Raptors? Richard Steele, make your Boston Celtics! Boston Celtics! <laughs> you know, the Raptors, Raptors are hanging on, hanging on by the fingertips. Okay, yeah, Boston, Boston Celtics. Um, and because you love football... I mean, I love football too, but not like I love the NBA. Uh, Sunday, first, first, first Bears game in Detroit. Who wins that game? You want to? Me- I'll make a prediction. I'm going on a Bears, man. This is the Bears. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot go against my. Listen, man. I, I have so many issues. You could put me on a couch. I have so many issues with the Bears. Love, hate. Uh, oh, my goodness. Don't get me started with Mitch Trubisky, the quarterback. Oh, oh, but don't start with that. Don't start. You know, we could have Patrick Mahomes. We have Mitch Trubisky. It just drives me crazy. But wait, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. To end on that note, there's another example of what I just got to talking about. <laughs> the city oh. took a pass on a guy who was a champion. He's going to be a champion quarterback. You know I mean? A, uh, all-star, a uh, Super Bowl-winning quarterback. And I, that was ridiculous. That was absolutely ridiculous. They haven't shot it at him. And those are the kinds of things that make people on the sidelines go, see? See what I told you? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I don't know. I, I, know. I know. This is why I really struggle with the Bear. I know. They had a, they're, they're prejudice against black quarterbacks. Quarterbacks. Come on out and say it, Richard. I'm with you 100% on that one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. They had the opportunity to get the greatest quarterback of the next 20 years. 
and they're training up to get this guy. That said, it's like Rick Morrissey in the Sun-Times wrote a column today. It was funny. It was me. I've been a Bears fan since 1966. I can't physically root against them. I want to, okay? I don't want to root for them, Richard. I'm asking for my help. I'm imploring. But I can't. I physically cannot. So I'm predicting the Bears. But I'm going to, just for the sake of argument, I'm going to pick the Toronto Raptors. I love the Toronto Raptors. I'm picking the Toronto Raptors tonight. So... Uh, I got Toronto, you have Boston, and uh, in a month we'll check back to see who is right. Who are you picking, Bears or Lions? <laughs> oh, oh, the Chicago Bears, Chicago Bears. Oh, all right, because you can't go against the Bears anymore. Now. That's right, absolutely, Rich, you know that's true. <laughs> Richard Steele, born and raised in the city of Chicago, proud graduate of Hirsch High School, okay, right. on the south side of Chicago. So... Uh, he's not going against the Chicago Bears. Richard, it's a blast talking to you. We'll bring you back in a month. We've been negligent. It's, it's all my fault. I take all responsibility, okay? No problem. No problem. All right. That's Richard Steele. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone. <laughs>